Now we don't have any value. Hey everyone, Eden here, as you might be able to tell. I am doing a solo episode this time around. Just before we start, just a point of order. I know that Langdon mentioned this um, on the previous episode that he did about Spotify and NFTs and all that mess. But Gareth is back, um, which is amazing. And honestly, I was speaking to Langdon a few days ago and we said how this could not have happened any better because him and I, that is Langdon, we had the time you know, to figure out our dynamic and get to know each other better and figure out our cadence on the podcast and stuff like that. And then Gareth came back. So now we have the best of both worlds, or all three worlds, I should say. And we're going to play this uh, fast and loose. So you're going to see some episodes that are Langdon and myself, some episodes that are Gareth and Langdon, and then solo episodes from all three of us, I would assume. Although those guys, they, they like interviews better than I do. So you can look forward to more um, interview content from them. And I'm going to be doing a solo episode now and again. Uh, kind of building on the solo episodes that I've already done. I usually, well, in the past, I've used this platform to talk about books that might be a bit softer, slightly darker, maybe more around the spaces of noir and magic realism and naturalism than some of the other books that we cover on the podcast. And I intend to keep that going, right? So if, if it was The Bear by Krivak or the Jeff Noon Nyquist books or Kidge Johnson's short fiction and um, others, other books like that. I have uh, used these solo episodes to talk about stuff that is still deeply literary and, of course, just good books. Um, but maybe they come from this more softer or muted or darker range of expression, and I would like to keep that going. And I have a bunch of things um, on the docket whether it's um, Sophia Samatar, um, Angelica Gordischer, and other uh, books that I want to cover using these solo episodes. This time around, we're going to be talking about Catherine M. Valente and her book Radiance. So Valente is an American science fiction writer. Well, she's also written fantasy and probably is more known for her fantasy, seeing as the girl who circumnavigated Fairyland in a ship of her own making, that's the title of the book, is probably her breakaway release. It was on a bunch of, you know, um, bestseller lists and it won um, a lot of awards. It was released in 2011, although it had a few iterations. Um interesting thing about this book it's actually actually a fictional book in a different Valente book in Palimpsest which is also one of her most celebrated novels this book is described and is then actually fleshed out um, it was crowdfunded and and this uh, garnered her um, a lot of fame and a lot of success um, and that, that book falls more into the YA category although I urge you to read it as well it's a fantastic um, fantastic book but the interesting thing about Valente is that she seems to be almost um, a chameleon of style she's written things in in many different styles so Palimpsest for example has won 
um, the LGBT science fiction world, um, the Lambda world, right, for LGBT science fiction or fantasy. And it's more of a like a postmodern and a condensed sort of book. And Radiance also has elements of that. Um, it messes around with narrative and metafiction, as we will soon discuss. But then on stuff like The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland and the other of the Fairyland books, she has more of a playful and more of a bright sort of voice. And this is also true for um, a lot of her other works. For example, Space Opera, which is about a literal crew, um, or rather a literal cast performing in opera on, on a spaceship, like a traveling uh, trope. That, that is that, that, the troupe, sorry, that was the word I was looking for. And then The Past is Red, which was released last year, which is a fantastic climate science fiction novel, has its own voice with lots of um, swear words and profanities and anger and and, um, depression and a bunch of other stuff. Fantastic book, but she sounds so different on each one of these works, which I find to be very, very um, interesting. So Radiance was released in 2015, and as far as I can tell, it's one of one of her more underread works, which is a shame. Although I can understand it, it's a very challenging book, but I think it is her most wonderful one to date. I have a lot of faith that she's going to do magnificent things. Her other books, like Palimpsest and um, The Past Is Red, are also fantastic, but this one is very, very unique. I remember. I had stumbled upon this book before I had read anything by Valente and the cover really grabbed me and the synopsis sounded so oddball and out there and unique that I just had to pick it up. I think it was in the Harvard bookstore in Chicago, if I recall correctly, um, or maybe in the Strand, something like that. One of those big, you know, famous shops in the States. And I remember uh, posting a picture that I, I had taken of the cover and saying, this is up next. And the cover has um, a genre descriptor and the descriptor is decopunk. And a lot of people on my timeline or my wall or however you want to call it today, they commented and said, wait, what's what's decopunk, right? Um, and of course, for those of you who can kind of pull apart the worlds and then make the association with cyberpunk and steampunk and dieselpunk and all those punks, then decopunk um, calls back the aesthetic of art deco. Right, which is the artistic, aesthetic, and also very importantly, architectural movement that took place in Europe and the United States, mostly on the East Coast, um, called Art Deco, which was characterized by, you know, New York basically. Right, when you think about the classic New York architecture, the the striking buildings with the pseudo Gothic gargoyles and the huge statues. Um, uh, in gold, right, cast in gold, or when you think about things like The Great Gatsby, that sort of like Gilded Age, very expressive, very um, futurist um, work, futurist in the sense of, again, the futurist movement that had happened in Italy, which was related, unfortunately, to fascism, but also had very interesting ideas about the human body and so on. Another good touch point, especially for Radiance itself, but also decopunk in general, is Metropolis, of course. Um, and that kind of science fiction of the, you know, the early days of the film industry. And this is something that actually plays a part in Radiance um, itself. And that is not an accident. Again, the, the book is very much um, a piece of metafiction. 
and corresponds with not just um, Metropolis but also um, other science fiction films and concepts from the turn of um, the century. What I'm googling right now, of course, a trip to the moon, right? I wanted to get the um, um, title correct, which is one of those most famous ones released in 1982. Sorry, 1902, not 82. Um, and it's considered to be one of the first and finest um, science fiction works by Georges Millet. I'm, I hope I'm not butchering the French. I am uh, sorry if I am. Um, and of course, this is echoes back to Jules Verne and those works of proto-science fiction, proto-fantasy, and sort of adventure um, novels. Now, in Radiance, the actual idea that takes place in A Trip to the Moon, which if you haven't watched it, it's available online, by the way, um, a huge cannon fires a capsule-like spaceship um, to the moon, and that's how humanity reaches the moon. In Radiance, the novel, this works. Right, the huge cannon actually works and doesn't just work, it also becomes the basis for human exploration and colonization of the solar system. So basically spaceships are these big momentum machines, right, which get fired from this huge semi-cannon, semi-orbital like catapult sort of device, and that enables them to describe these long arcs through the solar system and through, you know, mathematics and um, geometry and stuff like that to hit um, their destination. Now, in order to enable this sort of space travel, which takes a long time, right, there's no FTL, there's no teleportation, none of that stuff, um, travel between these planets takes a while, the humanity needed to find some sort of, you know, cheap, easy to maintain and nutritious sort of food and resource. And fortunately for them, they did. They found the callow whales, which are these, think about um, the jellyfish manowar, so these giant jellyfish, which, which are kind of like an iceberg, right? You can see the soft um, shell at the top of the water, but then below the, they have these strands that go into the ocean. These callow whales, which are native to Venus, um, make callow lard. Right, which you can then use, or callow milk, right, which you can then use for butter and, well, I, I mean, butter, quote-unquote, right? That's just a euphemism for whatever is made from their milk. And humanity um, harvests these native um, uh, fauna in order to have the resources that they need to go between the stars. So that is the meta-narrative, right? That's the kind of um, space-filling society that was formed. Now, because of the timing and hinted because of a trip to the moon and like its ability to predict space travel, one of the, or maybe the strongest industry that has formed in this new solar system is the film industry. But instead of becoming the Hollywood that we know and like, dislike, we have a complicated relationship with Hollywood, right? Um, this industry is on the moon. The moon had free real estate like in the meme no one's there you can easily build a studio there and also had massive sound stages right massive uh, places where you could build these sets and and film all of these um, films and of course this goes back to the again the fascination of the gilded age with the idea of quote-unquote the moving picture and the revolution that 
that created in storytelling, but also in, you know, um, the proliferation of news and information and so on. And of course, this first postmodernist moment, right, of the mediated image, the ability to create uh, simulations of reality and record them and so on. So, so all of these are still very much present in Valente's solar system. The last piece of the puzzle, before we can get to the narrative of the book itself, is when you read this book, the other influence that you just cannot escape is Ray Bradbury. And specifically stuff like The Illustrated Man, The Wines of Venus, The Reigns of Venus? I'm confusing the the titles. Um, He has one with wine, right? Like Daffodil Wine or Lily Wine or something like that. But anyway, um, he has a lot of books about Venus and how fecund it is and how fertile because of the constant rains there and so on. Um, Like he has one where wherever a drop of rain falls on Venus, uh, a huge plant sprouts out or like a type of moss, stuff like that. And it's very much influenced by that sort of, not just golden age science fiction, but very... Again, deco-punk sort of science fiction, right? Uh, clockwork spaceships and cities that are giant ships and this wondrous sort of fascination with the potential for the solar system. Um, the solar system has been transformed in Valenta's work. Venus is livable, although life there could be harsh. Again, the moon is a huge um, soundstage, a huge Hollywood. Um, Pluto is covered with these flowers that are harvested for their secretions in the use of a drug. Neptune is these huge ship cities that I referenced, um, and it's a French colony. Um, Uranus is this corporate nightmare of a world where day and night last so long, and most people live in squalor except for like hyper-rich, super-powerful executives, um, and so on and so forth. Now, whether these planets are actually transformed, like they are terraformed or it's all just illusion and, you know, smoke and mirrors is exactly the wrong question, right? That's exactly the line that the book would like to obfuscate um, in service to its um, meta-narrative. So now that we have all of these together, we can kind of gather all of these branches, the decopunk, Bradbury, Jules Verne, Trip to the Moon, Metropolis, all these influences, and you kind of get a feel for the aesthetic of the book. The last thing that we need to add in here as the last branch is Shakespeare. Shakespeare is quoted directly numerous times in the book. It is hinted that some of the characters, or even maybe all of the characters, or some of the narratives, or maybe all of the narratives, are actually replaying Shakespearean works. Um, especially uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon is the name of a character. There are others that fit, you know, Pan and, and um, Titiana and all of these characters. So beyond just being quoted and, and beautifully quoted in the book, by the way, some of the best scenes there are sort of recreations, references to Shakespearean works. Um, it also, the Shakespearean work and its pacing also dictates a lot of the actual narrative of the book. So now we are ready to talk about the plot itself, and I'm going to give you a fair warning that I'm going to be describing um, much less than usual as far as the plot, because the book is convoluted, to say the least, and the plot is not really the point, and also quite hard to, um, you know, get under you, to to get a good grasp on it, because of how um, meta and contradictory this book could be. But in in the simplest um, terms possible, um, what the main 
again, I, I want to say the main character, but is she the main character? Anyway, one of the main characters, Severin Ankh, her father is a famous director of these gothic romances, right? This is now the 40s, right? When the book itself happens in the alternate uh, 40s. And he's this famous um, Percival, Percy Ankh, famous director, but he makes fiction, right? And her way to rebel is to make documentaries. And she actually um, starts to make these documentaries. And again, the, spoiler territory, right? I, I can't really describe this narrative without going into spoilers. She starts to um, document the more unruly parts of society, right? So uh, cults on Neptune, lawlessness on Mars, perhaps some sort of labor struggle. So she starts to record the underbelly of this gilded society that they find themselves in, whereas Percival is more about fantasy and imagination, right? Um, but then her last film is on Venus, and it investigates the disappearance of a diving colony. So this is a colony of people who dive for, you know, like, like people on Earth dive for pearls. Same thing here. They dive for the callow whale, the callow milk, and, and, and other um, derivatives of the callow whales. And a colony disappears, right? Um, so Severin makes her way to Venus. Later we find out she's basically coming from all of the other planets in the solar system. She's done like a tour and made her documentaries and in a very sort of debutante way um, kind of sampled all of these different societies and became a local, quote-unquote, went native and now she's going to Venus and out of Venus returns her crew without Severin and with an additional, um, in addition to the crew, a boy um, named Anchises St. John Oh, well, that's what they name him, right? They don't know what his name is, um, what his name is. We eventually find out that they tracked him to this village alone where all of this colony had disappeared and he was the only one. And in the interaction between him and Severin, um, that's when Severin disappeared. It's also implied that he could come back because she had taken his place, right? So she disappeared so that he could come back. And Anchises St. John... Um, a few decades in the future becomes our other main character and he's your classic like almost echoes of um, Nyquist from Jeff Noon's books right this classic um, sort of incompetent sort of addicted sort of pessimistic and maybe even de uh, depressed noir detective right he's in over his head beautiful women seduce him he's chasing this figure of Severin to understand what happened on Venus, right? What happened to him, what happened to her, and the secret to this entire mystery. And of course, because he's backtracking her, he takes us on this journey across the solar system, right? As he um, attempts to detect exactly what happened to Catherine. To, sorry, Catherine is the author, to Severin. Um, it's not that much of a self-insult or, or at all. So, great. So now we have the narrative. The next few things I want to talk about um, in order are the metafictional tools that Valente um, applies in this book and how they work and why are they interesting. And then secondly, 
exploring her vision of the solar system and what makes it really unique and really captured um, my imagination and my heart. And then lastly, the point, right? Like, what is the book about? And that's when we'll spoil the ending and, and talk about um, empathy science fiction. If you don't know what that is, um, stay tuned. Great. So, by the way, you shouldn't know what that is. I made it up. It's something that I've been talking about for the last um, decade or so when thinking about science fiction. And the examples are all around us, and we'll discuss it um, near the end of this episode. So let's talk about the narrative devices that Valente uh, uh, deploys in order to tell the story of Radiance. So the first one is the uh, um, idea of pastiche, and specifically, in this case, pastiche of film journalism. There are two um, competing magazines, each one with his own their own voice right so one magazine is this gruff and direct and kind of dry report on what's happening on the moon and its uh, film industry which of course follows severin and, and percival and, and all these characters for obvious reasons and the other one is more yellow right like more sensational and it's they usually open the chapters right each chapter starts with this report from these magazines which affords us you know what's going on now, what's interesting is that by contrasting these two styles, Valente very, very early and very, very effectively creates an unreliable narrative, right? We're used to stuff that prefaces the uh, chapters. Like, look at House of Lees, for example. Like, you assume that the quotes that are given in the beginning of the chapters, even though it's House of Leaves and you trust nothing, you assume that these are true in their own kind of like sphere of meaning, right? They're true in themselves. They don't lie to themselves. What they think is true, they believe to be true and is true for them. But here we are inherently receiving a secondhand report about the events that we are about to read, right? So sometimes the reports are about stuff that happens off screen or stuff that's going to happen next or maybe um, has already happened in, in the timeline. But more often than not, it's actually describing the events that we are about to be told um, through the chapter itself. So then very quickly, there, there's a multitude of voices. And this is something that... Um, accompanies the book throughout the entire narrative. It's not just that there's an unreliable narrator. It's that there are different perspectives. I wanted to use the word monads, but maybe that's a bit too pretentious and also not really correct. It's not really a monad. It's more like a point of view. There are multiple points of view and none of them aspire to be objective. And that's a really important point to understand because this book is about filmmakers right in its core it's about making film making representation making representational art and the tension between severin and percival is that um of realism right um severin insists that realism is this higher form of art whereas percival makes the cliche but not in a bad sense right this troporific or very deep and and common um assertion that um realism is a sort of fantasy right and, and fantasy is a sort of of reality but of course severin as well as a documentarian we we find that out for the book she also intervenes in the objects of her perception right she doesn't have this actual clinical outside perspective on what she's documenting just like percival she edits um what's happening and she's not really shy about it side note 
one of the genius um, strokes on this book is how deep Percival goes to engineer reality for his art. He basically... Um, Severin was left to him as an orphan, like a classic, like, you know, uh, baby in a basket kind of thing. And he has multiple wives because he keeps casting different actresses as her mother. Like he would date an actress thinking she would be a good mother. Then he would see her influence on Severin, regardless of what Severin thinks and whom she loves. He would then divorce her and marry a different uh, actress. And he goes for a few of them. He would sometimes ask Severin as a child to laugh again in a certain way so that he could capture it in a camera and it would be more authentic, right? Like more childlike, more idyllic, right? And he sees no problem with this, right? There's no apologism um, in uh, Percy's character. So the two, one of the, two of the main characters um, do not aspire to um, objectivism. The choir, right, as in the Greek uh, plays choir, the choir doesn't aspire to objectivism because it's inherently a magazine or two magazines even. And then Anchises himself tells us multiple times that like his memory is completely shot. He's been abusing substances for like um, decades. And not only that, he came, he doesn't remember anything about the incident on Venus. He came from seemingly nowhere. Like, he's the ultimate stranger. So all of the voices are unreliable. Um, and that's a really interesting thing when we're talking about a book that's about film, right? There's a re really interesting uh, point here. Now, we can go one level of abstraction higher and ask the question, this is a book, a piece of literature that is one sort of representational art that also doesn't or shouldn't be making any claims to objectivism, right? We live post-Bart, right? Post the death of the author, post the author function, post um, Derrida and, and, and critical reading and all that stuff. We no longer, you know, claim to be able to represent reality in, in language um, objectively. But then on the other hand, it um, it's in dialogue with film. And I think it, it, it asks the question and doesn't necessarily provide an answer of which art form is more representational. That is, which art form is more mediated, right? Or said in another way, which art form has more steps? Read Simulacra. If it sounds like I'm thinking through this while I'm talking, that's because I am. Um, more Simulacra um, in front of it and the object being represented. Right? Which is which is really interesting because if you think about it, the ultimate level of meta-narrative in this book is Valenta's own voice. Right? Her own voice is that of an unreliable narrator telling you that she's unreliable. Like she's saying, let us discuss literature and film. And by the way, I am unreliable. Like I love film. I love literature. I don't know which one is, if any, either of them is superior. But let us let us explore these hosts of um, uh, haziness and um, weird boundaries and weird relationship between them. This actually reminds me of, this is a tangent, but go with it. This reminds me of something that Philip K. Dick once did um, when he wrote Radio 3 Album of, which is kind of Valis in its royal form. And in um, Radio 3 Album of, Philip K. Dick himself appears three times. Not three times as in numerical times, but three different voices. So there's a character called Horse Lover Fat, which is the transliteration of Philip K. Dick. Um, Philip is horse lover, right? and Dick is fat, loud. Um, and then Philip K. Dick is a named character, like him himself as the author. 
And then there's Philip K. Dick is the author that's writing the book. And there's a scene where all three of them are present in a diner, right? Like Philip K. Dick, the character, is brought in to confront horse lover fat, and Philip K. Dick, the author, starts to argue with them. Right? So you have three voices of the story of the narrator kind of speaking to each other. And in a sense, in Radiance, you never get it that um, in your face, right? Like, Catherine M. Valente is not a character in the book. But in many ways, Valente is writing about a person doing representation on art that is Severin and also Percival while she is making representation art about them, right? So you get this sort of Escher-esque loop um, that is very 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 interesting and handled in well you can say a lot of things about philip k dick but subtle he was not right but valente handles it with a lot of subtlety awesome so now we did a bunch of postmodern like meta narrative stuff and we talked about like simulacra and all that stuff we we did our uh taxes right for the um postmodern part of this podcast now let's talk about how fucking cool the science fiction is in this book it's so cool listen like science fiction it's kind of like metal. Surprise. Podcast about science fiction and metal, thinking the two things are similar. But they're similar in the sense that both genres have etched upon the flag innovation and pushing the envelope and being weird and experimenting with literature and doing weird stuff and thinking about weird things. But then, of course, as these things go, both mediums, genres, however you want to call them, formed a hegemony, right? Just like all forms of art right there became a center there became the accepted rebellion right the way to be different the the code that codifies how to break other codes right and you know what i mean like metal is can be very tired of course it can be very experimental and exciting right but it can be very samey and generic and um you know in love with its own tops science fiction and i'm sure i'm not surprising any of you listening is much the same in a lot of ways right I mean, it is capable of experimentation, capable of innovation, right? Capable of all these things, but the vast majority of it does none of them, right? Like you can count how many, you know, cyberpunk books featuring um, leather-clad hacker, you know, sliding down neon-lit buildings. You can count them like by by the million. I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. Like if people enjoy those books and they want to read them, go for it. Um, but sometimes even someone like myself, and I read a lot of experimental um, literature and literature by young authors and so on, you still get these patterns, right? You get these patterns of how to how to experiment and also, and more interestingly, how to have a relationship with the, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The canon of science fiction, right? Like it or not, every single piece of literature that you read or any single piece of art that you um, experience has some sort of relationship with the canon of its genre, right? And in science fiction, there's a lot of um, sneering and a lot of condescension and a lot of, you know, this is in, this is the tools that we had as a child, right? These are the toys that we had when we were kids. This is no longer for us. You can reference it and it can be a joke and you can make satire on it, but writing just like a straight up space opera is not really done today i mean it is but it's less um it's less popular today it has to be you know um weird and different and experimental and the gender has to be non-conformist and um things body horror has to play a part in it and things just have to be weird which is 
fantastic and some of Valente's other works are just like that right and it's great like I loved um, uh, oh my god now the, the name of the book she wrote um, The Light Brigade oh boy I'm gonna start googling now Cameron Hurley so Cameron Hurley um, also wrote a really fantastic book which I will now force my brain to remember by which I mean I will check it on Google the stars are legion thank god that's a really weird book right it's like the space opera but there's a lot of um, body horror the ships are alive and and stuff like that so I, I like that I really like that book and I really like that style but sometimes I want something fresher right something that's weird in its own way something that does something new of course you can do that by being even more experimental right like uh, push the envelope that's already been pushed and make really bizarre stuff like be Brian Catling and make write the war or um, s- some of that stuff like make non-ergodic texts and, and shit like that you can do that but what Valente has done is actually returned to the source in many ways that is in this case Ray Bradbury but not, all, not just Ray Bradbury also Alfred Bester um, and um, Paul Anderson and, and, and those kind of people um, and Frederick Paul of course um, I always get those two confused right because their names are so similar Um she went back to that to that um, era and kind of said, "Hey, I love this, right? Like we all love this. We 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 grew up on this stuff. Um, you know, it's called Clark's World Magazine, one of the most you know important science fiction magazines because Arthur C. Clarke, right? Like we all love this stuff. So, in a way, her experimentation is a return, right? She returns to that aesthetic." in a straight-faced and very embracing way instead of in a tongue-in-cheek kind of like ironic way. But the way that she makes it interesting is by saying she's not copying the matter of those books. She's not copying the content of Ray Bradbury. She's copying the spirit, the spirit of this, you know, meeting the solar system or the broader universe with this sort of wide-eyed wonder. And that's what she does. She takes the principle. And that's how you get... Um, Neptune, right, with its seafaring megacities that are just about to be disconnected from France, which is the metropole, right, the imperial mother of of the planet for 72 years. And there's this kind of like, I'm going to butcher the French again, I apologize, fin de siècle, right, like the end of a century. Um, this idea of the millennium approaching the city and they're all in this huge revel they're about to be disconnected some of them like that because they don't want to be tied to the metropole anymore but some of them are afraid of like the darkness of of the solar system without without radio contact um but you see this like fantastic celebration in all these colors and the, the description of the storms outside and stuff like that and, and of course Pluto, which is where um, the this film industry has all the sound effects and visual effect guys. So all of Pluto is like this one huge nightmare gothic mansion, right? Like the 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 guy who runs it is the former lighting engineer for all of these movies, and he dubs himself the Mad King of Pluto, and he uses all these smoke and mirror things and all these lighting things to create these crazy illusions about chimeras and dragons and buffaloes and all these weird animals and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and and Uranus, um, which is like this kind of like cyberpunk thing turned up to 11, has one of my favorite um, segments from the book in it when Anchises is 
tempted by this corporate uh, patron who, who is of course this you know very attractive woman who's like poison ivy right like she as she seduces him he understands that she's lethal for him she seduces him with bread right because fresh baked bread is this uber rarity because you can't really grow wheat right all you have is callow uh, milk and callow milk is nutritious but it's not exactly delicious um but this this uh, and there's a scene where he says like he describes you know the smell of bread and how it you know really captures his childhood and stuff like that fantastic and and each of these planets has has its own thing and it's brought to life in such a loving and, and lively way by valenta that, that they feel like places right they feel like places that you could visit they feel like places which you might not want to visit right mars is this kind of like outback you know um lawless country where all the ne'er to the wells of society end up and um while the moon is this gilded age gilded age playground for the rich it also it's also this brutal place for competition where people get chomped up by this um chomped up by this uh um machine of um movie making right um so whether she's describing quote-unquote positive environments and there's also by the way um liminal environments right like the spaceship that severin is in the many vessels that anchesis uses the colony on venus um and so on all of these places are described with such a flair for just the wonderful right that that speaks to the core of why science fiction is so good um and that's maybe my favorite part about this book is that i was just charmed right i was just filled with wonder as i got to explore all of these locales and all of these societies alongside valente and her characters which brings me to my um final point so a spoiler right this is a spoiler for the end of radiance so if you'd like to read this book without uh, spoilers please turn off the podcast now i will not be offended and we'll see you next time if you're still with me then the way this um, book ends is that we find out or we're told a story we never know if that story is 100 real we're told a story about a boy implied to be in thesis i won't go into all the details who makes contact with the callow whales and apparently these callow whales in one of the best turns of the tongue on the book are like needles threading the weave of the universe right and uh, like a needle or like a bus right they move for the loom and as they do they move through dimensions so this radiance's setting is an alternate reality of ours connected to us by the callow whales and when you touch them um you it it's it, it hurts you it's it's awful it's like a sting like a jellyfish's sting right and it can also kill you but you get a glimpse of these realities right and alternatives and um this was basically all of it was us glimpsing things from the eyes of the callow whales so that's what severin's final documentary wanted us to wanted to capture right the, the perspective of the callow whales now the interesting thing about it is these whales are the ultimate other and when i say the ultimate other i don't mean necessarily the other 
in the eyes of postmodernism, which is, you know, the abstraction of the existence of other people, but the other in the sense of nature as the other, the, the ultimate unknowable, right? Like you walk down the street and you meet a wild animal, let's say, you know, in urban environments such as my own, uh, jackals, right, or a street cat, or, or a bird or some sort, and you look at it and it is inherently alien to you, right? Like your communication with it is not possible or is it there is a way for you to communicate with those animals right you can feed them you can care for them you know when they hurt you can alleviate that hurt they know when you hurt and they react to it and the language between you is the language of empathy which is also the language that valente would like her characters or severin would like her colleagues, compatriots, family, friends, to be able to apply to the Callaways and not see them just as something to be mined, some this mindless object that is there just to provide humanity with the supplies that it needs to expand across the solar system, but also creatures with their own desires and their own trajectory, sorry, for existence and their own uniqueness. And that brings me back to this idea of empathy science fiction. What the hell is empathy science fiction this idea of empathy being a universal constant or a force that is unique in some way in our reality is a thread that has been running through science fiction basically since its conception but was amplified further through slipstream or if you want to call it i prefer to call it the new wave of science fiction so we've talked about this on the cast before, right? The wave in the 60s that contained people like Ursula Le Guin, Octavia Butler, Margaret Atwood, Philip Jose Farmer, Philip K. Dick to a sense in his later works, um, uh, Harlan Ellison, of course, um, and more and more and more. And when you read this, Delaney is a big name here because empathy is also a big part of many of his works. Empathy is this force that kind of defies reality, Right? It's what allows humans, another small tangent, um, in um, Parmenides, one of Plato's most um, obscure and hard-to-read um, dialogues, Parmenides tells Socrates that man is half animal, half um, god. That's why he's a demon, daemon, right? D-A-E-M-O-N. That's usually how you um, translate it. Because it is it is half, right? It has half of its desires in this world and, and half in, in a different world to which it aspires. And empathy, or in the case of Parmenides and Socrates, it would be intellect, right? But the idea to associate your emotions, your feelings, and your perceptions of reality with the outside world and to see them manifest in something else is a potential bridge, Right? A bridge for us to reach across the um, not-so-imagined, very real divide between us and, and the outside world. And A, bring some of that world in. Right, When I exercise empathy, I take the animal, the other human, the oppressed, whoever, and I bring them into myself. But also I bring some of myself into them. Right, Because empathy is reciprocal. Otherwise, it's not empathy. Right? It's just pity or mercy or any of these other emotions. Empathy is inherently two ways. right? And then some of myself goes into them so that they could be empathetic to me. right? And it becomes this bridge. So if you want examples of where this work um, plays a part, of course, Osara Gwyn 
in works like The Telling and Left Hand of Darkness and to a certain extent The Dispossessed, Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood, another really famous example of it, although the person and his politics are unfortunate, but Dan Simmons has this as a main plot point in the later books of Hyperion um, and, and he actually talks about empathy as this universal constant and this actual like physical force that exists on, on, on a physical level. Um, Philip K. Dick, if you think about uh, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, and of course, a scanner darkly, um, this idea of, of love and empathy being the basis for understanding reality um, very much uh, plays a part. And there are more, how should I call them, um, recent contemporary populist examples of this. One of the most negative ones that attempted to do empathy science fiction and failed horribly in my eyes is Interstellar, right? Where the, the point of the whole thing is, you know, love will overcome, will triumph time and all that stuff, which I, I agree with the message, but I just thought the execution was um, piss poor. So going back to Radiance, this is really the main thread that runs through the book, but in a very, very, very subtle way, right? Like, it's not stated as this is the point, right? Empathy is the point, love is the point, this is what we should persevere. But if you think about the way that Valente ends up describing the Calloways and the final incident, right? The crossing over of the side and Severian's disappearance and this shock, right? This alien encounter with the other that runs deep, right? You don't you don't just see the other from the outside, you you experience it. It's a pain. It runs through you, it shakes you, it changes your life. If you see all of that and read it in the book, you understand that this is the point and this is what Severin was trying to say, was trying to tell her father. She was trying to tell him, love me, right? Have empathy for me, not as a as an object or a subject of your movies, but as a person, as your daughter. Like, step away from behind the camera and experience me for who I am, a, a, a creature, a person who needs your love, one level. And then the other level, Severin telling her society to love their dispossessed, to love their oppressed, to love those who are getting um, left by the wayside of their um, expansion and their, um, you know, grandiose inheritance and, and, and proliferation and affluence. And then on the, on the final level, Valente telling us, right, um, that science fiction is about this empathy. It's about this, these stories. It's about the love that you can have for the weird, the new, the different, the other, right? And, and that, that's, at the end of the day, what makes Radiance such a fantastic book, right? It's not just about the, you know, the technical line-by-line -line writing, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong. Like, it's supremely well-written or even the incredible, you know, descriptions of those um, planets that I mentioned, just the fantastical and wondrous element of the book. It's mostly or primarily about Valente's ability to tell such a subtle story that becomes a vessel for such a powerful message that becomes all the more powerful because the story that tells it is so subtle. It creeps up on you. I was expecting <laughs> this other twist or, or some sort of like metafictional um, statement. And I sort of got it, right? Like the Callow Whales being this inter interdimensional beings and, and understanding that the story I'm being told is happening in like an alternate reality. Yeah, I got that metafictional kind of game. But what I got more is this shocking and unexpected and beautiful affirmation of, of empathy and its role within science fiction 
and its role within literature and its role within our lives. And that's it. Um, that is um, Catherine M. Valente's Radiance. I strongly encourage you to read this book. It's not an easy read. It's not a short book. It can get frustrating at times because everything is swimming together and playing with you and contradicting itself. Um, and it's a patient book, right? It takes it time. its time. It's not rushing anywhere. But it is well worth your time and your investment to, to really get to its core and um, unravel what it's about. And I hope that I was able to help you do that and that some of you listening will will pick up this book. And also, uh, The Past is Red, I cannot recommend it enough. And everything else that Valente has written is um, probably worth your time. And really one of the most exciting voices working today within science fiction, I feel. Um, and we are very much um, lucky to have her. And that's it. Well, we still need to do music, right? So I'm actually going to use this solo episode to highlight a project that is not new and is not as heavy as stuff that we would um, usually play, but which is criminally, criminally um, under-listened and under-known. So this project is called Dunsmuir. And if the name rings a bell, that's because it's one of those towns that H.P. Lovecraft loved to put into um, all of his bands. But listen to the lineup of um, this band. This is Neil Fallon of Clutch Fame on vocals. Um, Vinny Apis, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He drummed for Black Sabbath and Heaven and Hell. And Brad Davis from Fu Manchu, right? One of the best tomb stoner bands of all time. And David Dave Bone, who played in the company band alongside Neil Fallon. They formed this band um, together and they've released one album so far, which is a damn tragedy. And I hope there's another one coming at some point. Because this is like heavy metal, right? Like straight up heavy metal written about the occult. It's all about like mad scientists and monsters and Cthulhu and all that stuff. But Neil Fallon is on vocals, right? Uh, Neil Fallon, one of the best vocalists of the last, like, three, four decades, is on vocals for this. And the energy is just off the fucking hook. It's incredible. Um, one of the most enjoyable and fun and well-written albums that I have had the pleasure to listen to. And criminally, criminally unknown. So I, I, I very much hope that there's another album um, on the way. And we are going to play... What Manner of Bliss from Dunsmuir, self-titled album that was released in 2016. Um, thank you for listening. I will see you next time. And here is Dunsmuir.